Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by a longtime friend of myself and also now a, safe to say, a longtime contributor and guest of the show, Indy Johar of Dark Matter Labs. I, you know, every time we have these conversations, like I say, we, I start off my new year in, in conversation with Indy. It's a, it's a function of looking forward and looking back, getting a chance to really reflect on you know, the big macro issues of, of the day. It's it's a conversation where I, I usually map out where I'm going to go. This is my one unmapped conversation of, of the year. I, I go wherever the, st- the stream of consciousness takes us. And so it's, it's a pleasure to kick off my 2024 with Mr. Indy Johar. How are you, my friend? I'm very well, and it's an absolute pleasure to be back, and I'm um, pleasure to be having this conversation. I always learn so much, and I, I think these are really powerful conversations for me, so I genuinely want to thank you and all the deep, great work that you're doing at Deep Dive and, and all the brilliant people that you've had on. So big shout out to you first. Oh, thank you, my friend. It's a, it's a, it's a mutual love and, and admiration um, society going on here. You know, 2024, I, I think, it's, it's safe to say every year is an important year. But, you know, 2024 is, is an interesting year because it is a year where there's a lot of political movement. I, I, I think I read somewhere that more than half the countries in the world are having some form of election. Obviously, United States is going to be embroiled in an election, not, not saying that ours is more important than anyone else's. But Taiwan recently had their election, always a, a political hot hot topic um, vis-a-vis their relationship with China. So those are just two two examples. So against this this year of, you know, political and legislative movement, I thought it would provide us a chance to start with the the idea of the, the modern nation state. And with all of these elections and, and other changes, it's against the backdrop of, of incredible upheaval. Um, from a societal perspective, finance perspective, ecological perspective. So does the nation state and our adherence to it in the way it's currently constructed have the the relevance and the capability to deal with some of the challenges that we're facing as the world? Good morning. Uh, what a great <laughs> question. <laughs> uh, I felt like I've been thrown a hot potato. Um, no, absolutely. I mean, th- there's there's a sort of what I'd call the first generation obvious answer, which is, well, no, right? You could say we can't govern the planet through frameworks of the nation state. That's the kind of like what I would call first generation kind of intuitive response. But I don't think it's the right response. I think the, the the problem is not the nation state; it's how we conceive the nation state, and we and we govern it. So I think, so if we look at it from let's look at it from a sort of perspective of of a nation state, the territorial nation state as we have it right now, 
was a function in many ways of cartography. So the idea of the territorial nation state, which was divided and drawn in lines and the cartographic capabilities to be able to draw those lines and to map those territories and the the people who could map those territories could construct theories of dominion. That relationship of our world is is a modern construct. You know, if you look at Turtle Island, which is kind of North America uh, in, from an indigenous uh, and First Nations language and perspective, it had overlapping nation states. Like these nation states weren't di- weren't territorially divided; they had overlaps in space and time. So the first thing I would say is that the, the modern conception of the territorial na- nation state is is a kind of an interesting question. The second point I would say is most nation states are actually dependent on systems. So, you know, uh, we are all dependent in some way from uh, the benefits of the Amazon. We are all dependent on sand being lifted up from Sahara and being dropped on the Amazon, which acts as a key fertilizer. We're all dependent on these global planetary flows to which we are interdependent. And the UK, for example, is dependent on Kenyan soil or South African soil for its food systems, right? So one of the things I think that's become problematic is this idea of the bounded global state. And I think if you start to think about the nation state from a perspective of systems and entanglements of flows, and see the nation state as an entanglement of flows, you start to have a different form of relationship with the planet, which is not divisional, but entangled. And from that perspective, the nation state becomes a different type of actor because it starts to recognize its mutual interdependence. And we've seen this recently. If you look at the scale of crises that we're facing, all the nation states are starting to face what I would call entangled risks, whether it is COVID uh, as a non-divisible risk or whether it is actually even the Ukraine conflict is not limited to Ukraine and Russia. It's it's actually a systemic global supply chains reconfiguration that's going on at the same time. And we're seeing this, you know, same thing that's happening right now in the Red Sea. So what we start to see is this entangled realities. And I think what we haven't yet understood is how do we govern in entangled realities? And this is not just a problem of the nation state, which is which I think is just an example of a way of seeing we see ourselves as individuals, discrete individuals. So if you see yourself as a discrete individual rather than as a multitude, which is biologically we're a multitude, and then you see yourself not just as a multitude, but a multitude in interbeing with a context, you know, we are a multitude in relationship to, and then this is a multitude in development, a developmental multitude, we are becomings, not we are beings. That frame is a fractal frame that also allows us to reimagine the nation state. So I think the kind of one dimension of the problem is this this idea of how we conceive the world around us. And I think one of the big problems that we've got is we've been conceiving the world through this object-bounded theory of organizing. And I think if you reconceive the, the, the world not through a bounded model of thinking, but a relational world of thinking, I think that becomes super interesting. Now, what I would argue is that whilst we territorially govern in the interest of the boundary, we often operationalize using systems and asymmetric powers, right? Those asymmetric systems are used as extractions to favor the bounded system, as and some aspects of the bounded system. So even in that bounded system, there's, there's different forms of tyranny or benefit and tyrannies of extraction. So I, I think there's a sort of conception there. The, the, ex, the other conception that I think is really 
I think we are facing at a planetary scale is this fork. So often we get, I get into conversations and somebody will say that the carrying capacity of the planet is a billion people. And the counterposition of that is obviously, well, it's not actually a billion people because if you took out about 820 million people, largely Arlenos, frankly, the rest of the world is pretty fine. Um, so it's not it's it's our lifestyles and our lifestyles that are the source of the root of the problem. And at the same time, when we marry that, we say, you know, what we're trying to do. And I think it was George Bush who turned around and said, you know, the, the lifestyles of Americans, and not just Americans, Western Europeans, are not up for negotiation. And that was about actually creating a divisionality and externality to those relationships in the world, and and accepting effectively some form of large-scale what even what language to use here but some very large-scale destruction for the rest of the planet now i don't think that's a viable path like even the kind of if you speak to some of the military people what you realize is if if this was a path if we lose seven billion people it's not like we stop the distribution of weapons of mass destruction uh, capabilities of bio warfares will mean we as a planet won't survive because actually the capabilities we've built, and people like Daniel Schmachtenberger have kind of often talked about this in, in the kind of, in the, 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 the arsenal of capacity of destruction that we built and the democratization or the distribution of that is so significant that we don't survive. So I think the fork we're facing is, is between mutually assured destruction and mutually assured thriving. And we haven't quite yet made that conceptual fork. Because I think if if competition as a theory of self-destruction or new forms of mutually assured thriving are is the only path available to us, we open up a different conversation. And my final point on this is also, you know, like, you know, when we used to talk, I don't know, 2016, you'd always hear the sort of super rich say, oh, I've got a New Zealand strategy. You know, we've got a, a house in New Zealand. And I was like, well, how's that work out for you? So New Zealand in covid was not producing paracetamol, was not able to produce antibiotics, wasn't able to have ships land into its context. It didn't have PPPE. So what you're talking about is a situation where you're largely living in in a world, if we lose large parts of it, which just doesn't have any of the capabilities of of life in, as we know it. We're talking about the average age in middle ages being, what, 35 at the, the, the average lifespan. So... People are very glib when they talk about these things, but what they don't realize is how interconnected those global supply chains are. We are definitely a planetary entangled civilization, whether it's microchips, whether it's actually uh, critical mineral flows, whether it is um, other forms of nutrition flows, whether it's ecological flows that we're dependent on. And I think the challenge for us is not to move towards a world governance model or planetary governance framework, but the challenge for us is to reconceive the nation state to recognize it operates in relationship to. And it recognized its th- thriving and capacity to thrive is going to be a function of actually mutually assured thriving for other parts of the world. And I think that is a sort of enlightened self-interest framework through a system lens, I think becomes really key. And the final point I would say is that it also forces us to recognize, I think, a harder question, which is this question about recognizing that we are I would argue that we are currently at war, war with the planet, war with definitely each other, but also at war with 
future generations of humans and non-humans. We are terminating, we have literally future blood on our hands in the way we're living. And I think only when we start to recognize that we are at war and we need to talk about and conceive a great peace, how do we conceive a great peace is, I think, the framework that we have to start to think about. What is the great peace of the 21st century that recognizes the systemic violence that we've unleashed? And this violence is now self-terminating, where it's the accumulation of micro-violences like climate change and CO2, methane, or whether it's microplastics, the micro-violences and the macro-violences that we've un uh, unleashed are now at risk of self-terminating us. So the conception of a great peace is actually, I think, a great requirement, but it does, I, I don't think we have to eliminate the nation state at this moment in time. I think we have to reconceive the nation state to be able to respond in a different way and to be able to recognize those entanglements and, and build through mutually, mutually assured thriving models. I was jotting down some notes as, as you were, as you were sharing, because there's, so many tributaries that we could that we could take off of off of that off of that comment, but I I think I'm going to start with the the notion of peace. You know, looking for that long peace because I'm I'm curious in your mind if you think we as a, as a species recognize what that peace can look like, and and the reason why I ask that is if I think about just just my my life and you know we had the the so-called you know these demarcations of history we'll call them right when you had the end of the cold war which was considered now the the end of history famously right like we were going to we we no longer had this these these two superpowers poised with fingers on the button democracy for a for lack of a better word has kind of won and so now we're moving toward this prosperity. And to a, a certain extent, people would, would maybe look at that 89 to like 9-11 as like, oh, there was peace, <laughs> right? Um, NATO was firmly entrenched as a, as a block, um, kind of keeping the EU. There's all these things, right? And I think if you, if you look at that time with a, with a, with a keener eye, there was no peace really in in that time if you're thinking of it only as protracted conflict like the great wars right or or other um large scale multi-continent conflicts and so i I'm, i i frame it that way to say if you're if you're talking to the average the average person in the global north they might feel relatively untouched by some of the things that we have have talked about, so if you if you frame that, oh, you know, we need to think about peace. You're like, oh, well, of course we're at peace, right? Yeah, there's always wars in Africa, right? Like, you know, the the how people just kind of talk. Like, well, there's always a conflict somewhere in Africa, but other than that, I think we're the, the planet's pretty good, right? Um, so so how do we think through a, a notion of peace that is not just mired in in military conflict and, and those sort of entanglements. But like, think about it from the lifestyle perspective that, that you framed in, in your comment. And then I want to get to maps a little bit and go, and go back to how we think about drawing maps. 
No, I totally agree. And I, I think, you know, I think uh, Baya Kamara talks about this very eloquently, where he sort of says, you know, if you have a Dunkin' Donut, be recognizing, be in recognition of a Sumerian tiger that you are helping kill, right? Be in recognition because it is fried in palm oil. That palm oil is largely constructed in places in the world where actually habitats are being destroyed uh, from uh, in order to be able to produce our palm oil. So the, the violence that we engineer is not just military violence. And, you know, if you look at the cumulative effects of extinction of, of certainly extinction of uh, uh, ecological systems around the world, we're living in one of the great extinction level events. We are in the process of driving a scale of extinction that's been, you know, only been driven by meteorites and stuff like that. So it's kind of of an order of, oh. and then I think you're absolutely right that if you actually look at what we're about to do, you know, we're likely to hit between 2.7 to 3.1 degrees in a conservative landscape uh, of temperature of global warming. Those sorts of landscapes are going to open up vast amounts of hurt and real pain, displacement of billions of people. We already, I think, have more people displaced than we've had in World War Two. So, we, we, you know, we, we are starting to create vast amounts of violence, and I use the word violence in, in different formats. And we know we're curtailing, you know, you know, by 2070, vast parts of the planet are start to be outside human habitable niche zones. So we are starting to create environments which are non-hospitable to human beings in very frameworks. So yeah, no, I totally agree with this conception of the violence having to be understood in a much more systemic way. And and recognizing that violence, I think most people can feel it in their bones, right? It's not that I think they don't feel it. I think people do feel it. I think they've been trying to avert their eyes and their gaze from that violence. In different formats, I, I think you know. I if I was to, I would say that theory of violence is rooted in our theory of property, our the, that theory of dominion, of control, our theory of labor. I would argue. So the idea of labor units or units of work constructed by humans and the instrumentalization of humans into units of labor is also an extension of that that theory of violence where you're imposing control on dominion over human beings in different formats. So I, I would argue it's deeply rooted in a management theory is largely a theory of control, uh, largely a theory of control and allocation rather than a theory of unfoldment of the full capabilities of the system. So I think this kind of systemic violence and control and punishment systems is, you know, you, you, you know better than I. So people, you know, people, the life affirming infrastructures where, where the abolitionist movement it's been really powerful and really important is that they are giving an alternative to that systemic violence as a means of organizing the world. And I think we have to be honest, the control punishment violence systems has been our means of constructing the world around us. And I think till we move away from that as an organizing frame and embrace a different talk form of capacity and see the world differently, so we don't see the world from the landscape of assets and resources, and we start to see the world as a world of agents and agentification and organize the world not through management but through learning and learning systems and empowering and creating a new freedom of agency and a freedom to be, a freedom to be human, freedom to be in care. I think there's a different worldview possible, which I think has to be rooted in that. So I think you're right to, you know, I think we have to expand that theory of violence into a broader perspective and understand it, how it's been deep coded into our institutional landscape. You know, I would argue that you know, the, the theory of perspective, 
you know, perspective as it was constructed was a means to create distance. Right? It, it created distance, it created asymmetric power, and it also allowed for the objectification of things. So the distance, the power structure, and the eye, the eye of the king as it was kind of rooted was all about the construction of separation, objectification, and asymmetric power. And those tools were then, they were the cultural tools that then became the classification structures, the classification structures that, you know, classified people into colors of skin. And those colors of skin allowed for the dehumanization of people into different species models, which allowed for permission for violence. And we use these tools to construct a framework of permission landscapes for violence. And we know, right, the, the, the continent, uh, the African continent, the continent has greater human bio, uh, sort of genetic diversity than the rest of the fucking world. Right? So actually the idea of greater diversity by orders of magnitude. So these false classification theories were used as a means to permit violence. And there's, so I want to just root this conversation of violence back into these structures. Absolutely. And this obviously roots back into theories of cartography and mapping and who draws the maps and who draws these boundary systems and where power and dominion is constructed as well. So yeah, just to root them back through. And, you know, I think that gives us a, a good opportunity to turn back to this, this idea of maps, right? Because maps are often used as an example, a very common example in how we know things, right? Like, you know, we're going to map this process. We're going to look at a map in order to, to navigate from one space to another. And I, I use this, I didn't come up with this, but I use this often in, in presentations and in work that, you know, famous line, a map is not the territory. You, you cannot create a map to scale because each each time you try to do that, the, the space gets bigger, right? So that's that's sort of the idea as we as as we kind of as we move forward. So going back to that idea of creating these these boundaries, these borders that are then enforced oftentimes by these these tools of of violence, right? There's bureaucratic ways in which we enforce borders. There's literal um, physical construction in, in the way we reinforce borders. You know, the, the U.S. border um, to the south is filled with border patrol and razor wire and walls and all, all of these these things. So as we rethink and and reimagine maps and and borders and these and these agents of control, you know, how do we change this perspective? That, that, that you've kind of highlighted. And then taking it a little further, start to, to use that to, to build these relationships beyond borders, to take on some of these large ecological challenges that we're, that we're facing. Yeah, I mean, again, just a very, very important question. So I, I think the kind of caricature I would drive to sort of in order to communicate, I, I think historically you could make an argument that humans, so a theory of property when you're entangled with that reality, you know, so when you are embodied into that land, you are intergenerationally embodied into that land, you have a different theory of property because that property is a symbiotic relationship. 
Now, and historically, you know, intergenerational land was not allowed to be sold. You couldn't borrow money against it. You could sell it because it was just that it was intergenerational. It, you didn't have the rights and responsible uh, rights to sell. Now, what we've done is disembodied that relationship, constructed property deeds, constructed uh, financing mechanisms. We've abstracted those relationships into rights, and we disentangled the responsibilities. Now, in the abstraction. The abstraction has allowed us to, we've mapped a certain resolution of information. So the red line boundary around that land is mapped and understood and traded. What isn't understood and traded is the cherry tree, which whose blossom fertilizes and uh, the adjacent cherry trees. So if you cut down that cherry tree, you don't just cut down that cherry tree, you diminish the flowers of the whole uh, of the whole neighborhood, the pollinators of the whole neighborhood. What isn't understood is the flow of water, which effectively, uh, or the underground water which goes in is cleaned on your land and the soil quality. What isn't understood is the soil took 10,000 years to make and is precious. And so what we've constructed is an abstraction, which is so low resolution, and we've allowed that abstraction to be, uh, to be an extractive asymmetric relationship that is disembodied all those entangled relationships that were historically rooted in being embodied with that context. And one of, the, one of the reasons I'm drawing that out is that was a function of bureaucratic capabilities, centralized registers, doomsday book, all these things, the, the property rights registers, these created these frameworks of abstraction and then tradability and financialability. I think we're perhaps at a paradigm moment where that could shift, where we can create a new form of um, even registry of property, which is no longer about the boundary of land, but the networks of relationships. We can create new forms of spatial computing capacities that allow for a re-emergence of embodied capability. We can talk about new technological frames, which aren't necessarily about control frameworks, but about ennoblement frameworks. And, you know, you, you, you've probably all heard the story about the the judge that was effectively at about 12 o'clock giving everyone harsh sentences because their sugar levels were low. But as soon as you made them aware that that's what they were doing, they were able to change their behaviors. This is where we can actually use technology as a means to grow us as humans and make us more noble in our endeavors and behaviors. So how do we start to create? Um, we no longer need to live in a world where the map is detached from reality. I think augmented reality, in a way, is the refusion of the abstraction and the real world and an overlaid in a rich framework. So I think we might be moving away from the paradigm of the map as a, as a means of organizing, but to something else, a new hybridity, which allows us to actually organize in a different way. Now, it could be used, those same technologies could be used as technologies of abstraction, technologies of control, but they can also be used for technologies of ennoblement, technologies of relationality, technologies that uh, that invite our stewardship, uh, technologies which invite us to recognize land as maybe self-owning, to which we're, uh, we're one uh, actor in treaty with that land. It opens up a whole new paradigm, which is obviously a back to the future paradigm. It's a paradigm that that builds off First Nation Indigenous uh, conceptions and you know uh, ways of thinking and being, and also marries technological capacity to be able to construct a new relational worldview. 
And this is, I think, the paradigm that we're moving from is this object-orientated divisional worldview to a relational worldview, which is dynamic. And that's been made possible, I think, fundamentally by a new form of bureaucratic capability, a new form of institutional capability that's allowing us to challenge the orthodoxies of the map as an analog, divisional, static system that is detached from the territory. And now we're re-embedding the map in territory as being an, as an, as a, as a fused, um, function as opposed to a detached function of power. You, you mentioned, or you said a word that really leaped out at me when, you know, as you, as you were sharing, which is, which is precious, you know, you, 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 you referenced this, this notion that we have to think about these relationships in, in a more, in a, in a precious way. And, and it's when you're thinking about assets, you know, when you have this sort of standard idea of ownership that you've, that you've highlighted, assets are not typically thought of in that way. Our relationships to one another are not thought of in that way. So it, it, it made me kind of extend the thought. In, do you think we need to rewire the way we think about value? So much of, of our value is tied to ledger value. You know, one side of the ledger says one thing, another side of the ledger says another. You know, we we are are capable of assigning a, a numerical number to something like land, right? Um, or we can we can say this land has less value in order to extract and exploit, right? Um, Candice um, Fujikani, who I, who I interviewed maybe a, by this point two years ago, um, she talks about this a lot in, in her study of, of Hawaii and, and other indigenous places where waste is is often what's what's used to to signify land to the to the settler that's then seized by those who own it. Like, oh well, that's just sitting there, so it's a waste of an of an asset. So these are some more concrete examples, but I think. This this notion of of having a, a precious relationship with with one another and with the world around us could potentially lead to a way of assigning different types of of value. So I'm I'm curious how you're Excellent. how you're thinking about value yeah, I mean, as you move forward. And so uh, no, exactly, and I, and I think that the, the sim, you know another example is you know if communities plant trees they are 90% likely to survive versus if a municipality or a city plants its trees with 50%. So why that is, so that's a asset which is invested and people put their time in, is that the relationship of care is actually has direct value. So I would argue that the problem has been is that our financial systems have not been multi-currency systems. They do not recognize those relationships of care as being fundamental to the financial performance of those systems. So the currency of care is as important as the currency of finance. And I think unless we start to see the world from a multi-currency perspective, I think most of our investments are actually extractive or systemically harming. So economies don't work. You know, Financing a tree canopy without that relationship with care probably doesn't work. Whereas financing that tree canopy win relationship with that tree does work. So these are massive tipping points of new forms of behavior where multi-currency systems become key. So I would totally agree with you. And I, the other example I would say is that is uh, uh, 
our relationship of commodification of our environment and the, the treating things through a commodity tradable lens versus a relational lens is actually also a choice, you know. And this is where I'm going to, I'm using a, again, just a sort of narrative frame, but, you know, maybe to our listeners, if you imagine your grandmother's house and the house has not just tradable value, it has all forms of care and love for many of us. And I hope will be bequeathed to all of us in some other way, but it has some other forms of value attached to it. Yet, actually, increasingly what we've done with the housing market is we've turned it into a commodity tradable good. And that means the theory of relationship of value has been reduced. So that we've reduced our stewardship, we've reduced our maintenance of these systems, we've actually all sorts of relationships of care, which means the maintenance costs are much higher, the operational costs are much higher, X, Y, Z. So the question for me becomes is when these environments become if we reagentify, notice I had to say your grandmother's house. It was it had to embody it with some form of actual love and care. Now imagine if uh, if a house was to intuitively that would be our relationship, our invitation to live in relationship with with something that was an agent, in relationship of care with that environment. So I think this is not just a it's a new capability to be in relationship with things. It's it's essential for actually dealing with constraints on our material economy. It's essential of actually building non-violent material extraction systems, so reducing our material footprints. It's also about actually humanizing us. So in the act of being in relationship of commodity, we also reduce ourselves to being commodity. You know how hard it is not, how hard it is to actually be human? In, in our world, actually, actually to let go of all the norms, the procedures, the commodification tools that we all know, you know, um, the patter that we've all built as we go into a coffee shop, and actually to be fully genuine and present. It's pretty difficult. And I think, so the question for us is that dehumanization that we've seen around ourselves is unfurling and building, rebuilding the capacity to be radically human is, I think, a great opportunity in this in this worldview. And I think there's a new type of freedom that's available there, a freedom not of choices, uh, a freedom not just of choices, but a freedom actually to be radically human. And I think that is the invitation of the 21st century, is a new theory of freedom, which is a freedom to be re radically deeply human and humane in our relationship and in being in treaty with the world, being in relationships of care with the world, recognizing the entanglements that we have, both short, medium, and long term. I'm, I'm glad you brought up this element of of being human, um, and and how difficult it, it it is and and can be, because I, I want to go back to an earlier point about how we exist in these multitudes and we have these these fractal relationships within within ourselves, because we're we're also dealing with these I'll say violent conflicts, you know, to kind of keep us rooted in calling a thing a thing, these these violent conflicts of identity, where it's, I feel like we're, we're, there's a lot of hurt and pain that exists within these, these conversations. And it, it often feels like there's, there's a lack of acceptance of one's perspective, even as one's perspective fills all of these multitudes Right. And, and I, I experienced this firsthand, not every day, maybe, but 
damn near every day, right? Where you are, you are many things. But sometimes I'll, I'll say to folks, when I, I might be all of these things, but when I, when I walk out and, and into the world, I'm often confronted with probably my two major things, right? I'm male, right? And I'm and black. So the other multitudes are a little harder to see, and those might not be the front-facing things that that I'm confronted with, right? And if I'm traveling, like I mentioned, I was in Italy for for the holidays. When I'm going through the the border, right, the passport control, I'm an American, hold an American passport. I put it down on the thing. The guy, in my case, it was a woman, but they assess me through that identity. Right to allow me to pass through, pass through into the country. Um, when you when you talk about migration, like you said and, and cited correctly, there's more people on the move through displacement, whether through conflict, um, military conflict, or through climate, other reasons than ever before. Those people are viewed through those lenses, right? Like we see those articles off often. You know, oh, this passport is more valuable because, you know, the Japanese passport is accepted everywhere, right? Which, which places that identity on some scale of mobility, right? They have an ability to go and enter and exit countries, countries freely, and then they rank so and so, so and so forth. So I'm saying all that to kind of to set up a, a way in which we can start to think through these, these confrontations of identity, because I, I feel like the conversations have gotten so debased that it, it's harming us from finding solidarity with one another in, in many cases. Natural allies are no, no longer feel like natural allies. And there's a lot of, I feel like hurt, like deep emotional hurt. I don't know if trauma is the right word, but that accepting ourselves as, as humans, I think, is, is what maybe trigger that and kind of connect those thoughts. So unclear if there's a if, if there's a clear question in there but I, I you know I, I wrestle with this all the time so I'm curious how you might be seeing it or thinking about those those types of challenges I think it's great that you're naming it uh, and saying it because I, th I do think the problem was as we said earlier in this the construction of race was used as a permission to construct violence it was that was its primary device the dehumanization of people to allow permit violence. In the act of doing that, there was a two-party, we bifurcated humanity, we multiplicated humanity into different theories of identity. And now what we're seeing is actually, the problem is we're symbiotically locked in to the violence that rooted it and our, our ability to not actually re-entangle because of the violence that rooted it. And this is a real challenge because you're right. We are many of these things, right? You're a world-class thinker, world-class philosopher, maker, sort of a, a black Afro-American Afro man. You're, a, you know, you're an erudite podcast host. You're doing hundreds of things. You have multiple identities. You're American, live in Brooklyn, if I remember correctly still. Um, you know, so like... You've got all these identity systems, and the problem is that we end up where we we get reduced to these reductive systems of of identity. And this is where I think you know the intersectional kind of conversation is so important because actually the intersectional movement for me is a universal 
question. It's it's a question about recognizing that we are these intersectional realities, and actually only in the completeness of those those being human do we actually start to re-entangle ourselves. Now, the challenge that we do face is that as those identity frameworks were constructed to create the violence, and I think unless we do 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 some form of truth and reconciliation on the construction of those identities and the violence that was permitted on those. It's actually very difficult for both parties, or I use both as a, for, for both identity systems to actually reconcile. And, and that's not reducing anyone to just being, you can be white or brown, be affected, be the perpetrator, right? You can be both of those things. And it, it's, it's, it's allowing us to have a sensitive conversation in humility and care with recognition that as the world gets more difficult, and unfortunately it will, the transition that we're facing, the transition is not possible without some theory of social justice. Like the social tipping points are going to come at us before the environmental tipping points. In fact, I would argue history will may even look back and say the social tipping points were already kicking through the system. And and I think what politicians and I think people aren't understanding is that the social tipping points, unless we address them, we don't get to the environmental ecological tipping points. And maybe this is one fork I wanted to make with this conversation is also, I think what we'll see is the rise, rise of an environmental right and a right-orientated environmentalism, which will be about the conservation of ecological systems and a new form of austerity, which is language often used in the European context. I don't know if it's used in the US context, but but austerity not of state, but austerity of common goods, ecological goods. And the means that those tools of austerity will allow for the permissioning of new forms of radical inequality based on the austerity of common goods. It will obviously be a means to throttle migration, and also create new forms of othering, not just migration input, but othering, because it's a device of othering. And I think there's that sort of language of an, a new environmental right, both from an austerity lens and the othering lens that it will generate, is also amongst us. So, and my worry is that that's the counterposition that's coming. And, and that counterposition is already happening. Like you, I guarantee you, this is going to be the playbook. Friends listening, this is going to be the playbook of the what I'd call a new right that will emerge because it 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 roots several things into power, into critical common goods in very particular ways. And so, unless we can find an alternative for this for this landscape conversation, which you know goes back to the right, the beginning part of it, the reality of our entanglements. The, real, the kind of building our capacity to to stop the process of deothering, recognizing the pain that we've been part of, um, and you know, and, and this is not, you know, it, it it can't be just reduced to colors of skin because actually we know class played a very powerful role in some of those some of those things as well. So it requires all sorts of acknowledgements and richer conversations and we don't even have the capacity to have those conversations anymore you know even i think you and i have known each other many years and there'd be a different type of conversation we'd have if you and i were sitting there having coffee about this very point because we both know these are sensitive complex issues which unless unless unfolded with care they can cause a lot of hurt and 
and non, not intentionally hurt. It, there's no intentional desire to cause hurt, but it, it's the capacity to process live all that sort of d- different perspectives is really difficult. So how do we give ourselves permission to, to be fallible, to make mistakes, not intentionally, but to have unfold into these conversations is really important because I think there's a different paradigm that's coming at us, uh, which I think is going to be very, very powerful, unfortunately. I, I want to spend a little time with 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 your with your notion of um the ecological right but i want to before we do that i want i want to talk more about these these types of conversations because i feel that you're right if 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 you and i are are sitting there there's a there's this acceptance between us because we we have known each other so long where i can sit here and and honestly say i feel no harm ever from you, right? Like I, I grant you the notion of well-intentioned movement in the world, right? So when, once I enter into that space, you and I can talk about anything. And, and I don't think people need to agree on everything, right? I don't agree on any, no. on everything with myself, right? <laughs> much, no, less with, much less with other, other people. Um, but it's, it's, it's that permission um, or grace, maybe that that I find Before. we need to in, invite each other into, where there's an assumption that I'm just trying to understand, learn better, and 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 sometimes I'll, you know, on, online is an imperfect place to do anything, right? But I'll, you know, you're scrolling online, of course, because everybody does this, right? And you know, you'll get pulled into some rabbit hole of a conversation, not even a conversation you're in, but you're reading the conversation, right? So you're a voyeur to this conversation. And oftentimes I'll see people ask someone a question like, hey, person, something you said was of was of interest. Like, how do I learn more about this, right? And person will respond, hey, make Google your friend, right? Like, I'm not here to do the labor Right. And, 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 and sometimes I'm like, that's kind of an asshole response, right? (laughs) Like, you know, like I get the notion of, of, I get where that response is rooted in, right. That you got to do your own work. So Mm. I'm not going to lay it out for you. But at the same time, I'm like, anybody can recommend a couple of couple places to start, right? Like, I mean, the universe is vast. But so I, so I feel like the response is rooted in a trauma yeah. and, and it doesn't get us anywhere. Right. So I, I res, I'm not, I respect where you're coming from, but I'm also kind of like, can't we give a little bit more grace and assume the person is well-intentioned on the other side and, help them is a very minute example, but I, I, no, I feel but I like, it's great. how do we do this better? <laughs> well, I, I think this, this is the fundamental question. And I think you're absolutely right. The grace in um, the grace, you know, you, you're absolutely right. I understand the response, make Google your friend, but that's actually, it was a vulnerability from the other person. So if you read the question well, it's a vulnerability that the other person is saying. They're not actually saying it's an information problem. It's a vulnerability that they're declaring. And we're not engaging in the deeper question. We're engaging in the surface question. And you're absolutely right. So how do we construct that? And I think this is the 
this is the thing that's I think really important is that I think we've dehumanized ourselves. We've turned ourselves into bad robots. We've turned ourselves into these these instrumental agents. And I think the kind of big developmental arc for us is, you know, if the if the industrial age was about was about building our our cognitive capacities as the mechanized age was being built around us. I think this age is about building our embodied and emotional and our multidimensional cognitive capacities and embodying them in different formats. So we are going to see, I think this age invites a new form of development frameworks, and it also requires new theatres of conversation. And I think that's also really, really interesting that the theatres of conversation that we have, parliaments, senates, they're usually confrontational frameworks. They're frameworks of confrontation, not frameworks of, of conversation. And the grammar and syntax, the architectural grammar and syntax of those environments is coded for confrontation as a means of, of development. So we built societies rooted in a very particular theory of orchestration. And I think this is why this requires a much deeper recoding of the world around us. As industrial uh, industrialization required the building of public schools, what is the next generational institutional investments that we have to make to unfurl the full capacity of us as uh, to be, become radically human? How do we recode our theatres of, of conversation and decision-making in really radical ways that allow our humanity to be actually part of that conversation in rich formats? So I think these are exactly right, the grace of those spaces. And, and I, you said something that I really want to jump on real quick, which is, the, the confrontation, how these spaces are designed for a confrontation. And like, I, I laugh because I, I think, you know, I've seen parliament a lot <laughs> and um, it's funny because maybe it's not funny, but when I see parliament, I'm always like, man, you are right screaming at each other across this bench. <laughs> it's like, what's happening, right? <laughs> like even here, they don't scream at each other across like the, that, table thing and they're just like the the guy sits there with his like arms folded while the other dude just harangues him (laughs) so like what so that's just a a funny a funny thing you know the american in me just always laughs and i'm like oh my god but i i think you you made an interesting point that i want to take a little step further because i i reject this this notion of debate like when I'm when I'm online or I hear people talking, particularly I feel like this is weaponized by the right. They always want to debate, right? And and I've seen it here. Um, I'm not sure if you see it if see it there, but at least here in America, like all these right wing provocateurs will find someone on the left and say, "Well, if you really believe in what you say you believe, then we should debate," <laughs> right? And and I'm like, when did the debate become? the one way in which we can relate to one another. Like, I'm, I'm not going to play by your rules, right? E- even though we've very famously seen, I think, you know, James Baldwin and, and Malcolm X were, were famous debaters, yeah. right? And there's, there's lots of black and white archival footage of them in, again, the institutional halls of power debating another person and, and, usually embarrassing the other person, right? So, so, but so even though I like that because, hey, Malcolm X is winning, <laughs> the other side of me is like, now 
the debate is like this weaponized context in, in how we relate to one another. And, and, and how do we reject that frame? <laughs> but it, it's also a framework of othering, right? It's also, um, it's also, it, it's about the polarization of positions. It's a means to polarize positions. Whereas actually what we want is new synthesis. So, because it's not that people on the right are, are not clever and the people on the right are clever. Not true. Multiple perspectives, multiple different traumas, multiple histories, multiple uh, vulnerabilities that, that give birth to construction of possibilities and constraints, right? So it is not the polarization that gets us anywhere. It is our ability to synthesize and ability to respect those positions and to bring new higher order positions that accommodate with empathy those different positionalities and not putting them as being one being ignorant or another being ignorant. But that requires a construction of exactly these sorts of different formats, which is not about the debate, but which is about new synthesis ever deepening into recognition, creating empathy for each other's positionalities and recognizing wisdom in each other's positionality. It's a different frame. And unless we can build these new forms of institutional architectures to construct these different frames, I'm not sure how we as society make these transitions. And this is where I, I think, you know, what isn't often talked about is how deep the over, uh, over, overhaul of democracy that's required is. You know, it's not just, you know, the most radical people say we need to reimagine our constitution. Yes, possibly. But actually, it is a much more structural transformation of our means and spaces and our, and our demeanors and our capabilities to operate into these new forms of systems. And that requires a whole de- form of development. And that's the big arc that we're in the middle of that I think is of great hope and possibility. The, the fact that you and I are having this conversation is, I think, a glimmer of that other, other, other world. And the fact that we, we, we choose in these conversations not to create these divisionalities, I think is also a choice that we that we hold, which I think is great. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, I would do this all day if I could, right? Like, um, you know, but I, I, I want to get us, um, I want to go back to this, this notion of this newest austerity, um, eco-rights. I, I want to give an opportunity to, to flesh that out a, a little bit, because I, I, I do agree with you that that this is going to be an, an incredibly important point as we move forward. And I'm curious if, in your mind, this is a reflection of these larger scarcities that we're seeing, these perceived scarcities, because I, I don't believe that the world is as scarce as it is. Um, but do you think that a, a lot of that rise is driven by this this notion of resources becoming becoming last we're, we're 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 sort of tribalizing ourselves as we go for this the scarcity route as compared to the ab- abundant route um yeah because I, mean, I think during during covid here we we saw this sort of like it was very odd where people who were very much into like holistic things like like health and yoga and stuff were actually like bridges into like QAnon and, and other sort of conspiracy theories. And, and people reflected that their openness to confront the world through yoga and other things like that, kind of health and wellness was actually a gateway to their being 
skeptic and open to things like QAnon. So I'm, I'm curious if, if you're seeing gateways into this sort of like eco-right and, and things like that. And then we'll, we'll get to sort of the final question of the show. Sure. Um, look, I, I think, so some aspect of scarcity is probably real. The question is scarcity for who and how is that scarcity and volatility used and weaponized to massively increase inequality? So scarcity itself is a is a choice of how we manage that scarcity. Scarcity for, for equality or whether we choose it to, to create amplification of inequality. Those are choices. Then th- there is another point is that, yes, we might have some form of scarcity, but we could also construct new theories of abundance. So as a civilization, we might be facing a moment for a while where we have to deal with some form of material scarcity uh, as we move towards a biomaterial economy, as we move towards a durable material economy, as we move towards um, new energy sources. At the same time, we might be able to create new forms of abundances in our ability to care new forms of abundances in our cognitive functions, in our societal collective intelligences, new forms of computational abundances, perhaps even. So there is a sort of a landscape of shifting of of shifting from one thesis of scarcity and how we manage that scarce material economy to new theories of abundance and how we govern and manage those new theories of abundance. And and also building some of the regenerative economies like ecological systems and build, seeing them as regenerative goods and how do we invest in them. So I would say that, and it's true that I think the scarcity is a very powerful political weapon because it allows us to actually create the construction of fear and the construction of fear then allows us to weaponize and create the other and thereby fulfills an arc, a political arc that's actually wanted in some aspects of society because of deeper rooted fears or other things and, and deeper fears and other things. So the question is, and this is, I think, the weapon that will now become available. Right? The, the sort of those scarcities will now become available. And the question is, how do we as society recognize these broader structural shifts and have the conversation about new abundances, man, new economies of scarcity and for justice, for equitability, and new forms of regenerative economies and building those new regenerative bases that actually create foundational abundance in our everyday lives. And I think there's a way to hold this uh, this transition that doesn't fall us into the single point narratives that I think are very easy to say. But I do think we're going to see the weaponization of that scarcity to be able to drive some of those things, unless we can take a more broader view. And this is where, you know, fundamentally what you and I have been talking about, I would argue, is is a form of human development perspective, because I think those new abundances are only made available if we can create the frameworks for a new form of human development and abundance of human development. And if we can do that, then we can open up a whole field of value, monetary and non-monetary value, into those new forms of economies. So I think there's a kind of a deeper structural transition question. And, you know, in history, people have done this, right? So Denmark, when it went bankrupt in 1813, I think it was, you know, it, its first inv- major investment was in was in Volk schools, people schools, uh, which were actually at the crossover between 
sort of technical skills in philosophy. 10% of the population went on them. And that was all about building self-authoring capacity of society. And self-authoring capacity of society meant that actually they were less susceptible to some of the imp- implications of, uh, of what was going on in Germany at that time or what happened later in that time. So because they, had, they were rooted in self-authoring capacity. So how do you build societal capabilities to make these transitions? I think it's going to be a really key part of the story. And this is infrastructure scale work in my view, and societal infrastructure scale work, as well as democracy, the kind of new infrastructures of democracy, which isn't about debate, but about new forms of synthesis. And I think these are the types of infrastructures we're going to have to build for transition, and we're going to have to uh, build them in radically new ways as well. And and this is the perfect setup for the final question, then we're going to get into the, the just the drop, and we'll be wrapping everything up. Change management has has been i think a discipline that again has has had its its overlay on on the way we think about our industry and and that dovetails so much into all the other pieces of of how our economy and world work like a like a like a jigsaw and and there are are many good elements to to change management that are that are useful again it does have that sort of mapping diagram sort of static way of 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 looking at things but not to say that some of that is not not useful but i'm i'm curious as we as we think about this abundance as we think about the ways in which we are confronting the violence as we think about the ways we are looking to open up new conversations, new vulnerabilities and grace, kind of all the things that we've that we've mapped out. How do we divorce ourselves or maybe pull ourselves away a little bit from change management models and thinking into something that is more emergent? And and quite honestly, I I don't know if there's a name for for it. It's just something that I that I that I think about, where I often think like I wish I could I could more three D things I might draw on a on a piece of paper, right? Um, so so lack of a of a better framed question, but I, I think it's a it's change management. Like I said, I see a lot of good things in there, like nuggets, but I'm not sure if it's equipped for the scale of the challenges that we've highlighted in this conversation. So how do we dig into something more emergent, promising, and filled with grace and love? Go. <laughs> uh, again, again, what a, what a question. Um, hey, we've got to go so out think, on a good one. <laughs> exactly. So I think there's fundamental questions in that question, which I think are really important. So change management assumes an agent of change, an agent who has so it all, almost has this idea that there's some passive legitimate place that is orchestrating this change and i think one of the challenges that we face is there is no like you know i think there's no one at the wheel i think i think barack obama sort of said you go high enough in the system and you realize no one actually is fully at the wheel <laughs> so why that's important is i think i think the theory of change management is constructed in the theory of there being a person or a team, a person. Whereas actually change is increasingly a function of multiple agents. And I would say a multitude of agents, not just multiple, a multitude of agents. And once you start to look at change through a multitude of agency realm, and then you start to say, well, actually no single agent has authority over those agents, because if you were to say, 
you have authority, then you're into a command and control theory. You know, we've broken, I would say, the kind of ideals of actually democratizing power, agency, all sorts of things. So if we recognize there's a multitude of agents and there's no single person that has the authority to organize, then I think we have to move away from a theory of change management to what I would say is the politics of change. And not the politics as in politicians, but the, the infrastructure of the new politics of change becomes more about the things that you and I were discussing earlier, the deliberative infrastructures for multitudes to understand themselves. Also, it becomes stuff like, you know, currently, I, I suppose I talk a little bit much about climate risk, but climate risk is not being adequately modelled. And not only is it not adequately modelled by different parties, so they don't, they're not even pricing in climate risk on their balance sheets. The models are all variant, and those models are non-transparent, which means that actually you can create no shared comprehension of the risks that we face. Right? So these risks are fractured, non-visible, they are modelled differently and different calibrated, which means that our capacity to organise change is broken because actually those fundamentals are broken in different formats. So... I think, and then the question is, how does how do you construct the politics of change? I think is also constructed in how do you build the sensing capacity of the system, the recognition of interdependence, the sort of how do you build the sense making capacity of that system to be able to actually the, the the actors to sense make together in those deliberative environments? How do you build actually democratize the capacity for? change itself so multiple agents can actually do change collaboratively from the bottom up. So actually the theory of change becomes much more about building the frameworks of learning, building the frameworks of feedback, building the frameworks of grace and deliberation, as opposed to the orchestration of the change itself. And I think that's a, that also within it, I think is something powerful because it puts the power and agency and the, the capacity to be, uh, to be in care at the front end of the system, which is all of us, whether it's institutions or organizations, as opposed to dehumanizing those systems to being instrumentalized towards that change. So it's a capabilities view of transformation rather than what I would say is a control view of transformation. So I think there's a different theory of change required for democracies. And I think that requires us to reimagine information systems, reimagine how we hold meetings, reimagine all the boring stuff in our in our norms, which are largely constructed from the top-down worldview. So if we really want to embrace a deep democracy, we have to actually embrace a new theory of change management, which I think has to be a new form of politics of change and building the infrastructures for a new politics of change, not big P politics, but small P politics, and building the capacity for renewal that's rooted in all of us, rather than the capacity of renewal being orchestrated by some of us. Absolutely. This, as always, you know, we have gone deep, but at the same time, barely scratched the surface. Um, and and yeah, so I, I can't... I can't keep you all day, man. So I, I want to get us into the drop. And the drop is just a chance for us to share anything at all with um, our listeners that they should that they should engage with. My drop is a, is a book um, by Carl Sagan. And Carl Sagan came to me when I was a kid through Cosmos. I think many people, that was their, maybe their first introduction to Carl Sagan here, uh, which was a PBS special basically about space. And when I was seven or eight years old, this was the most mind-blowing thing I'd ever, ever seen. And 
I don't even know if I knew him as much as I just knew this thing that was on PBS, which is Channel 13 here in New York. And it's only subsequently as I got older and started to engage in more of his work, um, both fiction and nonfiction, that I, I really realized the scope of his capacity as a thinker um, beyond just astronomy. His, his, his perspective on astronomy and the cosmos was a way in, in looking at ourselves as, as human beings. And um, so the book I'm going to recommend is um, called The Demon Haunted World, Science as a Candle in the Dark. And um, it, it's, it's a book that feels incredibly prescient, even though it was written in 96 or 97, something like that. Um, so that's my drop. I think it's a it's a good it's a good one to start with at the at the top of a of a new and very pivotal year. Carl Sagan, The Demon Haunted World. Go for it. Beautiful. What? Beautiful. Um I would uh, I would probably mm, a couple of things maybe. I'll yeah, go for forward. it. Um one is The Flowering Wand uh, by Sophie Strand, which I think is a beautiful view into history, into a narrative of history from a Western perspective of different ideas of society, partnership societies, which lived in a different worldview to watch we, one which we've become massively accustomed to. And I think she's a beautiful philosophical thinker of great uh, care. And I think I would really recommend um, reading her and reading her work because I think it's uh, it's 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 a worldview that I think we often forget, and I think it has richness in it. Like I sort of said earlier, I think we're in the moment where we will go back to the future, and I think some of those those old worldviews will be reborn with new forms of capabilities in ways that we can't yet fully understand. So the flowering one, Sophie Strand. Um, the other one is is uh, uh, Viktor Frankl, which is a gainer. Um, old classic, and I've just started listening to it again. Uh, Man's Search for Meaning, uh, which is again a beautiful um, book into the deeper sense of how we find purpose and and why critical how critical our meaning frameworks are to actually our survival and our ability to thrive as societies, and and how we've I would argue removed meaning from society. Um, and thereby actually created a kind of a, a sociological self-termination capacity in a way that's quite quite harmful. And, um, and I think, obviously, he's an incredible. Uh, he, is, he was an incredible author and a thinker, Absolutely. and went through horrific realities to be able to write some of this stuff for us and to code some of these possibilities. So, yeah, absolutely, couple of drops. Those are those are great drops. I, I wasn't familiar with the flowering wand, but I'm I'm definitely going to check it out. And, and Victor Frankl requires absolutely no introduction. He is absolutely a a, a giant. Um, and and you put it so eloquently. He's he's someone that should always be cracked open on your on your bookshelf, on your Kindle, however you engage with books. <laughs> um, he's totally. he's one that should that should always remain a constant. Indy, I can't I can't thank you enough for for joining me on the show. These these conversations are selfishly um, really vital for me, and I, I I know my listeners find incredible value in it because um, your your conversations always remain among the top ones, <laughs> no matter how long they last. 
I don't know. I don't know how long the time has passed between when we've recorded them. They're always in the top five. So, you know, I, I appreciate you. I appreciate your work. I appreciate you spending time with me and, you know, look forward to doing this again and again and again. Uh, it's a real honor. Thank you for everything that you're doing in hosting these conversations. I think these are, and the nature of how we hold them, because uh, I think many of us are discussing difficult, sensitive issues which can have landscapes of hurt. So I appreciate the care in which this is held, and also the many, many brilliant people that you have on here, which I think is a real gift to the world. So thank you. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate you. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.